Part One, Chapter Three of the Dead Letter by Meta Victoria Fuller Victor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Figure Beneath the Trees. As I came near the old Argyle mansion, it seemed to me never to have looked so fair before. The place was the embodiment of calm prosperity. Stately and spacious, it rose from the lawn in the midst of great old oaks, whose trunks must have hardened through a century of growth, and whose red leaves, slowly dropping, now flamed in the sunshine. Although the growing village had stretched up to and encircled the grounds, it had still the air of a country place, for the lawn was roomy and the gardens were extensive. The house was built of stone, in a massive yet graceful style, with such sunshiny windows and pleasant porticoes that it had nothing of a sombre look. It is strange what opposite emotions will group themselves in the soul at the same moment. The sight of those lordly trees called up the exquisite picture of Tennyson's talking oak. O muffle round thy knees with fern, and shadow Sumner chase. Long may thy topmost branch discern the roofs of Sumner place. I wondered if Henry had not repeated them as he walked with Eleanor amid the golden light and flickering shadows beneath the branches of these trees. I recalled how I once, in my madness, before I knew that she was betrothed to another, had apostrophized the monarch of them all, in the passionate words of Walter. Now, looking at this ancient tree, I perceived with my eyes, though hardly with my mind, that it had some fresh excoriations upon the bark. If I had thought anything at all about it, I thought it the work of the storm, for numerous branches had been torn from the trees throughout the grove, and the ground was carpeted with fresh-fallen leaves. Passing up the walk I caught a glimpse of Eleanor at an upper window, and heard her singing a hymn, softly to herself, as she moved about her chamber. I stopped as if struck a blow. How could I force myself to drop the pall over this glorious morning? Alas, of all the homes in that village, perhaps this was the only one on which the shadow had not yet fallen, this over which it was to settle, to be lifted nevermore. Of all the hearts as yet unstartled by the tragic event was that most certain to be withered, that young heart, this moment so full of love and bliss, caroling hymns out of the fullness of its gratitude to God for its own delicious happiness. Oh, I must, I must! I went in at an open window, from a portico into the library. James was there, dressed for church, his prayer-book and handkerchief on the table, and he was looking over the last evening's paper. The sight of him gave me a slight relief. His uncle and myself had forgotten him in the midst of our distress. It was bad enough to have to tell anyone such news, but any delay in meeting Eleanor was eagerly welcomed. He looked at me inquiringly. My manner was enough to denote that something had gone wrong. "'What is it, Richard?' "'Horrible, most horrible. For heaven's sake, what is the matter?' "'Morland has been murdered.' "'Morland? What? Where? Whom do they suspect?' "'And her father wishes me to tell Eleanor. You are her cousin, James. Will you not be the fittest person?' the hope crossing me that he would undertake the delivery of the message. "'I!' he exclaimed, leaning against the case of books beside him. "'I? Oh, no, not I. I'd be the last person. I'd look well telling her about it, wouldn't I?' And he half laughed, though trembling from head to foot. If I thought his manner strange, I did not wonder at it. The dreadful nature of the shock had unnerved all of us. "'Where is Mary?' I asked. "'We had better tell her first, and have her present. Indeed, I wish—' 
I had turned toward the door, which opened into the hall, to search for the younger sister. As I spoke, the words died on my lips. Eleanor was standing there. She had been coming in to get a book, and evidently heard what had passed. She was as white as the morning dress she wore. "'Where is he?' Her voice sounded almost natural. "'At the Eagle Hotel,' I answered, without reflection, glad that she showed such self-command, and, since she did, glad also that the terrible communication was over. She turned and ran through the hall, down the avenue toward the gate. In her thin slippers, her hair uncovered, fleet as a vision of the wind, she fled. I sprung after her. It would not do to allow her to shock herself with that sudden, awful sight. As she rushed out upon the street, I caught her by the arm. "'Let me go! I must go to him! Don't you see? He will need me!' She made an effort to break away, looking down the street with strained eyes. Poor child! As if, he being dead, she could do him any good. Her stunned heart had as yet gone no further than that if Henry was hurt, was murdered, he would need her by his side. She must go to him and comfort him in his calamity. It was yet to teach her that this world and the things of this world, even she herself, were no more to him. "'Come back, Eleanor. They will bring him to you before long.' I had to lift her in my arms and carry her back to the house. In the hall we met Mary, who had heard the story from James, and who burst into tears and sobs as she saw her sister. "'They are keeping me away from him,' said Eleanor pitifully, looking at her. I felt her form relax in my arms, saw that she had fainted. James and I carried her to a sofa, while Mary ran distractedly for the housekeeper.' There was noisy wailing now in the mansion. The servants all admired and liked the young gentleman to whom their mistress was to be married, and, as usual, they gave full scope to their powers of expressing terror and sympathy. In the midst of cries and tears, the insensible girl was conveyed to her chamber. James and myself paced the long halls and porticoes, waiting to hear tidings of her recovery. After a time the housekeeper came down, informing us that Miss Argyle had come to her senses, leastwise enough to open her eyes and look about, but she wouldn't speak, and she looked dreadful. Just then Mr. Argyle came in. After being informed of what had occurred, he went up to his daughter's room. With uttermost tenderness he gave her the details of the murder, as they were known, his eyes overrunning with tears, to see that not a drop of moisture softened her fixed, unnatural look. Friends came in and went out with no notice from her. "'I wish they would all leave me but you, Mary,' she said after a time. "'Father, will you let me know when—' "'Yes, yes.' He kissed her, and she was left with her sister for a watcher. Hours passed. Some of us went into the dining-room and drank of the strong tea which the housekeeper had prepared, for we felt weak and unnerved. The parents were expected in the evening train— there being but one train running on Sunday. The shadow deepened over the house from hour to hour. It was late in the afternoon before the body could be removed from the hotel where the coroner's inquest was held. I asked James to go with me and attend upon its conveyance to Mr. Argyle's. He declined, upon the plea of being too much unstrung to go out. As the sad procession reached the garden in front of the mansion with its burden, I observed— in the midst of several who had gathered about, a woman, whose face, even in that time of preoccupation, arrested my attention. It was that of a girl, young and handsome, though now thin and deadly pale, 
with a wild look in her black eyes, which were fixed upon the shrouded burden with more than awe and curiosity. I know not yet why I remarked her so particularly, why her strange face made such an impression on me. Once she started toward us, and then shrunk back again. By her dress and general appearance she might have been a shop-girl. I had never seen her before. "'That girl,' said a gentleman by my side, "'acts queerly, and come to think, she was on the train from New York yesterday afternoon. Not the one poor Moreland came in, the one before. I was on board myself and noticed her particularly, as she sat facing me. She seemed to have some trouble on her mind.' I seldom forget faces, and I never forgot hers. I will trace her out, was my mental resolve. We passed on into the house, and deposited our charge in the back parlour. I thought of Eleanor, as she had walked this room just twenty-four hours ago, a brilliant vision of love and triumphant beauty. Aye, twenty-four hours ago this clay before me was as resplendent with life, as eager, as glowing with the hope of the soul within it. Now all the hours of time, would never restore the tenant to his tenement, who had dared to take upon himself the responsibility of unlawfully and with violence ejecting this human soul from its house. I shuddered as I asked myself the question. Somewhere must be lurking a guilty creature, with a heart on fire from the flames of hell with which it had put itself in contact. Then my heart stood still within me. All but the family had been banished from the apartment. Her father was leading in Eleanor. With a slow step, clinging to his arm, she entered. But as her eyes fixed themselves upon the rigid outlines lying there beneath the funeral pall, she sprung forward, casting herself upon her lover's corpse. Before she had been silent, now began a murmur of woe so heart-rending that we who listened wished ourselves deaf before our ears had heard tones and sentences which could never be forgotten. It would be useless for me, a man, with a man's language and thoughts, to attempt to repeat what this broken-hearted woman said to her dead lover. It was not her words so much as it was her pathetic tones. She talked to him as if he were alive and could hear her. She was resolved to make him hear and feel her love through the dark death which was between them. "'Ah, Henry,' she said in a low, caressing tone, pressing back the curls from his forehead with her hand, "'your hair is wet still. To think that you should lie out there all night—' all night on the ground in the rain and i not know of it i to be sleeping in my warm bed actually sleeping and you lying out in the storm dead that is the strangest thing that makes me wonder to think i could tell me that you forgive me for that darling for sleeping you know when you were out there i was thinking of you when i took the rose out of my dress that night i dreamed of you all night but if i had known where you were i would have gone out barefooted I would have stayed by you, and kept the rain from your face, from your dear, dear hair, that I like so much, and hardly ever dare to touch. It was cruel of me to sleep so. Would you guess I was vexed at you last night because you didn't come? It was that made me so gay, not because I was happy. Vexed at you for not coming, when you could not come because you were dead. And she laughed. As that soft, dreadful laughter thrilled through the room, with a groan, Mr. Argyle arose and went out. He could bear no more. Disturbed with a fear that her reason was shaken, I spoke with Mary, and we too tried to lift her up and persuade her out of the room. "'Oh, don't try to get me away from him again,' she pleaded with a quivering smile, which made us sick. 
"'Don't be troubled, Henry. I'm not going. I'm not. They are going to put my hand in yours and bury me with you. It's so curious I should have been playing the piano and wearing my new dress, and never guessing it, that you were so near me, dead, murdered.' the kisses the light gentle touches of his hands and forehead as if she might hurt him with the caresses which she could not withhold the intent look which continually watched him as if expecting an answer the miserable smile upon her white face these were things which haunted those who saw them through many a future slumber you will not say you forgive me for singing last night you don't say a word to me because you are dead that's it because you are dead murdered the echo of her own last word recalled her wandering reason. "'My God! Murdered!' she exclaimed, suddenly rising to her full height, with an awful air. "'Who do you suppose did it?' Her cousin was standing near. Her eyes fell upon him as she asked the question. The look, the manner, were too much for his already overwrought sensibility. He shrunk away, caught my arm, and sunk down insensible. I did not wonder. We all of us felt as if we could endure no more." Going to the family physician, who waited in another apartment, I begged of him to use some influence to withdraw Miss Argyle from the room, and quiet her feelings and memory, before her brain yielded to the strain upon it. After giving us some directions what to do with James, he went and talked with her, with so much wisdom and tact that the danger to her reason seemed passing, persuading her also into taking the powder which he himself administered, but no argument could induce her to leave the mute unanswering clay the arrival of the relatives was the last scene in the tragedy of that day unable to bear more of it i went out in the darkness and walked upon the lawn my head was hot the cool air felt grateful to me i leaned long upon the trunk of an oak whose dark shadow shut out the starlight from above me thought was busy with recent events who was the murderer the question revolved in my brain coming uppermost every other moment as certainly as the turning of a wheel brings a certain point again and again to the top. My training, as a student of the law, helped my mind to fix upon every slightest circumstance which might hold a suspicion. Could that woman? But no, the hand of a woman could scarcely have given that sure and powerful blow. It looked like the work of a practiced hand, or, if not, at least it had been deliberately given with malice aforethought. The assassin had premeditated the deed, had watched his victim and awaited the hour. Thus far there was absolutely no clue whatever to the guilty party. Bold as was the act, committed in the early evening, in the haunts of a busy community, it had been most fatally successful, and the doer had vanished as completely as if the earth had opened and swallowed him up. No one, as yet, could form any plausible conjecture, even as to the motive. In the name of Eleanor Argyle, in the name of her whom I loved, whose happiness I had that day seen in ruins, I vowed to use every endeavour to discover and bring to punishment the murderer. I know not why this purpose took such firm hold of me. The conviction of the guilty would not restore the life which had been taken, the bloom to a heart prematurely withered. It would afford no consolation to the bereaved. Yet if to discover had been to call back Henry Morland to the world from which he had been so ruthlessly dismissed, I could hardly have been more determined in the pursuit. In action only could I feel relief from the oppression which weighed upon me. It could not give life to the dead, but the voice of justice called aloud, never to permit this deed to sink into oblivion, until she had executed the divine vengeance of the law upon the doer. 
As I stood there in silence and darkness, pondering the matter, I heard a light rustle of the dry leaves upon the ground, and felt, rather than saw, a figure pass me. I might have thought it one of the servants, were it not for the evident caution of its movements. Presently, where the shadows of the trees were less thick, I detected a person stealing toward the house. As she crossed an open space, the starlight revealed the form and garments of a female. The next moment she passed into the obscurity of shadows again, where she remained some time, unsuspicious of my proximity, like myself leaning against a tree and watching the mansion. Apparently satisfied that no one was about, the hour now verging toward midnight, she approached with hovering steps, now pausing, now drawing back, the west side of the mansion, from one of the windows of which the solemn light of the death-candles shone. Under this window she crouched down. I could not tell if her attitude were a kneeling one. It must have been more than an hour that she remained motionless in this place, I, equally quiet, watching the dark spot where she was. For the instant that she had stood between me and the window, her form was outlined against the light, when I saw that this must be the young woman whose strange conduct at the gate had attracted my attention. Of course I did not see her face, but the tall slender figure, the dark bonnet, and nervous movement were the same. I perplexed myself with vain conjectures. I could not help connecting her with the murder, or with the victim, in some manner, however vague. At last she arose, lingered, went away, passing near me with that soft, rustling step again. I was impelled to stretch out my hand and seize her. Her conduct was suspicious. She ought to be arrested and examined, if only to clear herself of these circumstances. The idea that, by following her, I might trace her to some haunt, where proofs were secreted, or accomplices hidden, withheld my grasp. Cautiously timing my step with hers, that the murmur of the leaves might not betray me, I followed. As she passed out the gate I stood behind a tree, lest she should look back and discern me. Then I passed through, following along in the shadow of the fence. She hurried on in the direction of the spot at which the murder had been committed. But when nearly there, perceiving that some persons, though long past midnight, still hovered about the fatal place, she turned and passed me. As soon as I dared, without alarming her, I also turned, pursuing her through the long, quiet street, until it brought her to a more crowded and poorer part of the village, where she went down a side street and disappeared in a tenement house, the entrance hall to which was open. I ought to have gone at once for officers and searched the place, but I unwisely concluded to wait for daylight. As I came up the walk on my return, I met James Argyle in the avenue near the front portico. "'Oh, is it you?' he exclaimed, after I had spoken to him. "'I thought it was—was—' "'You are not superstitious, James,' for his hollow voice betrayed that he was frightened. "'You did give me a confounded uneasy sensation as you came up,' he answered with a laugh. "'How can people laugh under such circumstances? Where have you been at this hour, Richard?' "'Walking in the cool air. The house smothered me.' "'So it did me. I could not rest. I have just come out to get a breath of air.' It is almost morning, I said, and passed on into my chamber. I knew who watched, without food, without rest, in the chamber of death, by whose door my footsteps led, but ache as my heart might, I had no words of comfort for sorrow like hers. So I passed on. End of Part 1 Chapter 3